Mac Power Users, episode 369, Workflows with Musician Michael Whaling. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you today, Katie Floyd? I'm great, David. How are you? I'm doing excellent. And this is a show I have been looking forward to for a very long time. Uh, as uh, listeners know, I am uh, a bit of a uh, amateur musician. I used to play a lot, not so much anymore. I've always wanted to have someone on the show that is a serious, you know, film and television scorer and, you know, just an all out amazing musician. And I was talking to a couple friends and they hooked me up with this amazing guest. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael Whalen. David, it's great to be here. Thank you, Michael. I mean, I feel like the universe has aligned to put you on the Mac Power users because <laughs> if we if we had a Venn diagram, we need a Mac nerd. And Michael and I talked quite a bit recently. And your first Mac was the 512K Mac. This guy, you know, got a long pedigree, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Deep. I'm a deep, deep, deep Mac Mac guy. Yeah, so he loves the Mac, and he's composed uh, for 775 film and television scores over his career. He's won two and counting. And, and counting. He's won two Emmy Awards: one for America at a Crossroads in 2007, the other one for How Do You Spell God in 1997. Also, an independent recording artist just released a brand new album called Dream Cycle. And uh, so, Michael, uh, we've been wanting to have a music geek on the show that that makes the most of their Mac to uh, to compose. And I can't imagine a better guy than you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's and it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about technology because you know it's it's funny it's. Uh, these days, uh, there's not a lot of places to share with my Mac geek friends. They just, you know, cause everyone's so like, you know, like 10 years ago, you know, you could like Mac together and now it, things are changed. So I'm just, I'm so excited about this opportunity to talk to you guys. Yeah. I, I feel like to a certain extent, you know, the democratization of technology has made it so it's not as big of a deal for people to figure this stuff out. Right. I, I would say that's exactly correct. I mean, I think, you know, you see the stuff online with everyone talking about like Final Cut Pro or they talk about Logic or whatever. And they talk about like how easy Apple has made so many of their software uh, packages. And, you know, that in the old style, there was like this bar to entry that you needed to jump over, whether you were smart enough or capable enough to kind of do that. And as a guy who has jumped over many, many software bars in my life, uh, I got to tell you, man, right now is the golden age for technology. Now, I'm just going to ask, how did you get started with music on the Mac? Because I, I remember there were a few programs, maybe not quite as back as far as the, the 512 days, but um, have you always been composing music digitally? When, when was the start of it? Uh, it's, it's a really interesting question. So in 1984, I graduated from high school. So, um, the very first music software that I got for Mac was performer, but it was version 1.1. And, um, I had a Yamaha keyboard with MIDI and I remember I had like an opcode interface and you guys from the eighties who have any idea what I'm talking about are going to go, Oh my, Oh my goodness. I haven't heard these names in so long. Um, and yeah, so that was the very first computer sequencer that I had on a computer. I had a couple of hardware sequencers. Uh, I had a Roland, uh, MC, uh, 500. And then, um, I had, a um, uh, a Yamaha box, 
uh, hardware box, but software box. Yep. Performer 1.1. <laughs> I, I, I remember I, I had, um, yeah, in the like late eighties, I was doing a lot of studio work at the time as well. And I had bought a Roland sound canvas, which was, you know, now is ancient, but man, I thought I was like on the edge when I bought that thing. You know, and it was really interesting. I had a friend in, because I was born in New York City, but I grew up in Washington, D.C. And I had a friend who had a Kurzweil 250, which was, you know, this huge keyboard and had had, you know, at the time it had this amazing piano sound and he was Russian and this very amazing sort of technology guy, pretty good musician, but amazing technology guy. And he really pushed the Mac as far as you could take it at the time, because he was really interested in this idea of having the computer be like a music typewriter. Like, you know, that was like, that was amazing. We take that so for granted right now. Um, But, you know, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, I mean, that was a dream that you could just, you could literally just play it in and it would spit back music at you. Yeah. I I started with a Sears and Roebuck tape recorder on my piano and that was my, uh, I had two of them, so I would I would bounce back, and it was pretty terrible after a little while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, but so, yeah. So, but now I mean, you you make you make your living, you pay for your shoes, uh, writing music, not only for your own albums, but for all the film and television work you do. But but I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about kind of your uh, your history on the Mac. So so you started with the first five twelve K Mac. At what point did you get one connected to a keyboard? Um, it actually took a little bit of time um, because um, for me, it was, you know, going to college and trying to figure out what I was doing with, you know, music. I went to the Berkeley College of Music for about a year in Boston, and then I came back and, you know, my parents were like, okay, well, if you're not cutting it in Boston, you know, you should quit music. And uh, I was... You know, I got to say my sophomore, junior year in college, I mean, I was kind of a a recluse. I basically went to the basement of my parents' house in Washington, D.C., and I spent a lot of time writing music, not going to class, and um, learning about music technology and learning about production. And, you know, I was doing my first paid gigs, um, you know, working as a producer, working as um, as a composer. I, I did an arrangement for one of the... Um, uh, local TV stations in Washington, D.C. at the time. And <clears throat> those were my first gigs and trying to figure out kind of what the lay of the land was in terms of how was I going to embark on this career without a degree in music and without really any knowledge of how this stuff worked, except for what I was hearing from my friends and, you know, going through keyboard magazine and going through, you know, musician magazine and trying to get as many resources as I could. Um, and, you know, basically uh, sort of teaching myself, but at the same time, um, a lot of trial and error, a lot. Now, now, why did you focus on Mac at the time? Because right then it was kind of an open question as to what the platform would be for music creation, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, I got to tell you that from day one, it was the interface. Um, it was, you know, I, it was the screen. It was the mouse. It was the entire user interface was much more about how I thought and where I was than my friends who were, you know, doing the IBM thing. And I 
I just, I, I have never been an IBM guy. Um, and you know, what's funny is my brother, I would say is a reformed IBM guy, meaning he has like sort of a Mac now and he's sort of on two platforms. My son is completely comfortable on, you know, you know, coming from that place and on Mac. So it was just, for me, it was just a much friendlier environment and I got into it much faster. Well, Michael, you know, you're, you're totally dating yourself by saying IBM though, you know? know, Well, Hey, you know, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, we're having an eighties conversation at some point Uh, I will, I'll change my vocabulary. (laughs) I promise. And I remember because I was the same thing. I mean, uh, IBM and those big box PCs, I hated those things. Well, the the 80s were great for Macs, but I will tell you that, as you probably know, there were some dark times there in the 90s. And uh, particularly if you were looking at pro applications with maybe one of the exceptions being like in publishing and, and those types of things, um, did you ever switch? Did you ever waver and, and for business or college or other professional reasons, you know, move away from the Mac for a period of time? Or, or did you say, you know, stay true and faithful? You like I I I asked that question with absolutely no bias, right? Could you tell? No. Well, no, 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 you know, it's like, and here is your test. Here we go. So, um, okay. So, uh, I never finished college. So, so anybody who wants to hate on me, go ahead. I never finished college. And in 1987, I moved to New York and I got a job as an intern at one of the biggest commercial music houses in the world called Elias Associates. And, um, I basically didn't go to sleep for two years. So in, during the day, they were doing commercials. And uh, at night, my boss, John, was, you know, doing film scores and he was producing major artists. And basically, I didn't want to miss anything. So I slept on the couch and I was doing my thing all the time. And the computer of choice there was Mac, except that the main music creation sequencer that we had was a Synclavier. So that was my introduction to the Synclavier platform, which I fell in love with. So um, so the answer to your question is, I didn't quite get away from the Mac platform, but what I was asking the Mac to do, especially in 89 and 90, when I left Elias and I went off on my own as a freelancer, um, I got my father-in-law at the time to co-sign a bank loan with me, and I got my first Sinclair system, which cost me $225,000. Thank you very much. Wow. And, uh, yeah. wow. and, uh, and the, the terminal that the Sinclair used was a digital VT100 terminal, but they had a, uh, an emulation software for the Mac 2X that actually worked really well. And uh, that was the beginning of a, you know, and I, you know, I was sharing with David, like a forest <laughs> of, of Macintoshes that I've had. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I had my, I got my first Sinclair 3200 and uh, you know, with the, uh, with the, with the Mac front end um, I've had other standalone music systems in my studio, but as a main computer, no, I don't. Th- I've never strayed away from the Mac. I mean, there was a moment in the '90s, like you said, like '93, '94, '95, where things got real wonky and things were weird and whatever. And you know, all the Sinclair guys were trying to figure out like what was going to happen. Um, but 
Uh, no, I've never, I've never swayed. I mean, I had a Fairlight, which is a stand, you know, which, which is, you know, it's a self-contained system. Um, I've had, uh, a wave PPG 2.3 system with a wave term, which is self-contained, self-contained system, but they're all talking to my main sequencer, which was always a Mac. Now I just, I have to ask, I mean, do you still give your father-in-law the best Christmas present every year? You must, right? You know, I got to say, well, you know, Bill, Bill is not with us anymore, but I got to tell you, you know, Bill was one of these guys who never complimented you to your face, but he would say the most amazing things about me behind my back, (laughs) you know? So like I would run into Bill's friends and they'd be like, you know, he has, he's so proud of you. And, you know, you got this crazy instrument and whatever, but I mean, really Bill swinging out and going to that little bank with me in Boston was really the beginning of my career because I'm a 22-year-old kid working out of an apartment in New York City with a Sinclair. And, you know, at that point, like, I'm sorry, like, I was like the wunderkin, like, sound designer, like, what do you need? Because at that point, Sinclair's were only really in major studios, and there was major guys doing major work. This idea that, like, a guy would have one, like, in his back bedroom is ludicrous. And, um, you know, and that's, you know, that's what I did. And I was, I worked for, and I worked for everybody in town. and And how many Macs do you think you've had over the years, Michael? Um, well, you know, it's funny since, you know, David, since you and I started this conversation, you know, I've been really trying to count and I have a spreadsheet, but it's not accurate. So my spreadsheet says 68. Um, but there's times in my career, like I had a, a studio on 26th Street in New York where, you know, at any time, I mean, I had seven Macs in that studio between me and my assistant. And then we had an intern, um, you know, and then in Boston, I had a a studio where we had, we had two and a half rooms kind of tricked out. So we've had a lot of machines simultaneously, even now, which I would call kind of the quiet days. I have four machines. I have, you know, I have four Macs. So, um, you know, and that's not iPads. It's not iPhones. That's not any of that stuff. That's just Macs. So, um, yeah, I, 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 my guess is that the number's probably between 65 and 70 machines. That's, that's, that's wild. One of the things you told me that I thought was great was, you know, we hear the stories occasionally about somebody gets a piece of hardware uh, that's no longer supported by the Mac. You had that problem too. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So it's, it's funny now, you know, I don't know if I'm about to go into like crazy mode, but I, but it sounds like some of the people in your audience are probably as weirdly obsessive as I am, but we all are um, just just assume that we all are, (laughs) uh, you know, thank you. I feel so welcome. Thank you. So, um, I've had seven different Sinclair systems. At one point I had one of the largest Sinclair systems in the world. So it was enormous, and what what makes it a bigger system versus a smaller system was the number of voices and how much polyphonic RAM you had for the machine. And at one point, I got a little baby FM Sinclair system. And, you know, later on, you know, in the show, we'll talk about there's a, a brand new app called the Sinclair V, which um, Cameron, the guy who wrote the software for the Sinclair, just wrote. And it's my favorite app. It's like I use it all the time. But 
um, I guess it was like 15 years ago, I got a Sinclair 2, just an FM system. And at a certain point, the software for it stopped. And the emulation program stopped because <laughs> they were like, oh, who wants to buy one of these? And the answer is me. And so I had to go buy just a Mac 2X because after that, the emulation software wouldn't run on the hardware. So I had to do some homework on where could I find a machine. So I found a guy named Wayne Bibbins, who is way up in upstate New York, and he has this this thing called Wayne's Computers. And now, I don't want to start a fight, but according to them, this is their talking, in their warehouse, they have more Macs than in any one place in the world. And Wayne's story about this is that... Um, you know, Steve Jobs went to the, um, uh, to the store and went to the warehouse and just couldn't believe it because it's like literally every machine the company ever made ever. And they have multiple ones of it. So I called them and I said, Hey, I'm looking for a Mac 2X. And this is, you know, this, these are the specs. And they're like, Oh yeah, we have four machines. I'm like, you have four machines. Oh yeah. 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 No problem. And I, I mean, FedEx done next day, beautifully boxed whole thing. But you know, if you want the machine, it's there. Now, what's really interesting is, is that when I got the computer and I got the software and, and I got it set up over a couple of days and it worked great and whatever, you know, one of the things that I really got was there are certain pieces of software with certain pieces of hardware that just work. And I think, you know, I love brand new software and I love things that are out on the leading edge. But at the same time, I got to tell you that there's just something about going and having something that you know will always work and is rock solid. And especially like if you're in a studio and especially if you're doing commercials or in films and you're on a deadline, you can't afford to have things break. So what was really cool about going back and having this, this old 2X it was a workhorse. I had it for years and it was wonderful because it never broke and the software was like pretty much bugged out in terms of, you know, it, it, it never, it never got weird or wonky. So, um, it was what was funny as in uh, was I, a couple more times I got computers from Wayne's. I got a old Mac laptop. Don't ask me why, just weird. And then, um, in storage, I have a Mac classic, which I also got from Wayne's, which was beautiful, absolutely beautiful condition. And cause I just wanted it. And, um, so highly recommend these guys. Special note to Stephen Hackett. Yeah, we'll have to tell him. And I'll, I'll go ahead and put Wayne's into the uh, show notes so you guys can check it out. It's it's cool. But, you know, it's funny. Uh, we hear from listeners occasionally that do have, like, I remember we got an email once from a listener that runs a print studio, and it was the same thing. They had, like, some real, like, old Macs running. But the the printers they had worked exactly right with those Macs. And I don't even think they had them connected to the Internet. It was just like, okay, this is a machine that's basically a brain for this other machine. And they were fine, but they were like always like stocking them away where they could. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Head over to TextExpander.com to recall your best words instantly and repeatedly. Katie and I are both huge fans of Text Expander. In fact, they were the first sponsor of the Mac Power Users. Text Expander is an application that allows you to create long snippets of text from very short snippets of text. So if you want to type your cell phone number and you just type C-C-E-L-L, it inserts it exactly formatted how you want. But it can do way more than that, too. You can put entire paragraphs or entire documents together using Text Expander. 
But that's not enough for the Text Expander team. They have been hard at work making Text Expander even more useful with Teams. Text Expander for Teams is a productivity multiplier. It's a shared knowledge base from which your team communicates quickly and accurately. Imagine all of your team's common replies are worded by your best writers. Well, that's what you can do with Text Expander for Teams. And I'll tell you, I'm not just a pitch man here, I'm also a customer. I've finally accepted that I can't keep up with all of the customer support email that comes in with some of the projects I'm doing on Max Sparky. So I have an assistant now. When I get a request from a customer that I can deal with through my assistant, I forward it to her and she responds, largely using text expander snippets that I've created. That's because I purchased a text expander for Teams subscription that I share with her. So now when I need to get the word out to a customer about how to get a new download link, or maybe somebody on Vimeo that has a question about how to get the closed captioning to work, I've created all the snippets she needs to answer those emails. If something changes, I can reset the snippet on my end, and the Text Expander Teams system propagates it down to her computer as well. And because Text Expander is now on Windows, she could even answer it on a Windows computer. But you know that's not true, because my assistant would never use Windows. So not only can I share these snippets, they're also accessible and searchable through simple abbreviations and keyboard shortcuts. So if my assistant doesn't remember how to trigger one of the crazy snippets I've created, she can search it out and go find it that way. The bottom line is with this system, I can respond quickly, efficiently, and accurately to customers. So Max Sparky customer service gets better. Your customer service can get better too with Text Expander for Teams. Teams of all sizes are harnessing this productivity benefit, including 1Password, WordPress, Shopify, and You Need a Budget. These are just a few of the companies that are benefiting from Text Expander for Teams. So whether you need Text Expander for yourself or your entire team, head over to textexpander.com slash MPU and check it out. So Michael, uh, so all the nerds in us today want to hear from a guy who made 775 films and television scores. What kind of gear is in your studio today? Well, you know, it's funny because we're kind of in this weird time right now. Like if I was 25 years old, I would probably have a lot of hardware and I might have, you know, like old mixing boards. And there's kind of like a sort of a retro nouveau thing going on. And there was a period of time where I just had a computer and a master controller and a nice pair of speakers and um, monitors. I mean, you know, later, later, you know, you know, me, you and Katie can talk about my obsession with monitors, but it's fine. So, but long story short, in the last couple of years, I have moved from that streamlined, like single keyboard computer thing to, I have my little spare bedroom here in Brooklyn filled with gear. <laughs> so, so, so the answer the Mac answer to your question is, um, I have a Mac pro, which I got, uh, a little while ago. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. It's, uh, uh, 3.5 gigahertz, uh, six core, uh, it screams, it does exactly what I wanted to do. But when I got the machine, you know, I, cause I was a little bit old school. It was like, okay, well, I'm going to get the Mac and I'm going to fill it with hard drives. And when I got the machine, I, I had a friend who had already set one up who works in the film business and, and film guys and video guys throw around data, way more data than I do. And he was like, nope, don't do that. 
Do not fill the machine with hard drives. Get as many external hard drives as you can, work on your backup scheme, do all that, and and it will make the machine so much faster and best advice I ever got. So, um, so the machine is... Yes, obviously it's got hard drive in it, but it's but I have a whole rack of external drives. I have a RAID drive. I have a whole thing, and I never really had that before because um, I was like, okay, well, it all kind of works inside the box the way it's supposed to, which is a very old fashioned way of thinking about it. Now this machine is screaming fast. It's uh, it's it's the best Mac I've ever had. It by a lot. Now is it the trash can? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I would assume if you've got a Mac Pro, you got it a while ago because they haven't made any new Mac Pros in a while. But it, this is the older cheese grater style, for lack of a better term. No, no, no. It's the, it's the black trash can. Oh, OK. OK. And you're using a RAID array with this. Is is it a specific one? Is it kind of one of these build your own or just a stack of drives that you've done? It's a stack of drives that I have with uh, software. Very cool. There's, you know, there's something to be said uh, for for years, and I think raids gained in, uh, these arrays have gained in popularity. We all just used to have all these hard drives that we would plug in, and we'd have all these cords across our desks and spaghetti everywhere, and what's on what drive, and all of these things. And I, you know, I, I still do have a couple of those drives for for backup or for plugging and unplugging and taking places, but. You know, now that I've got network attached storage and these other things, there's something to be said about having just a big chunk of hard drive somewhere that you can know that everything's there and done. Yeah, I got to say, Katie, I completely agree with you. But if you had asked me three or four years ago, I would have been like, no, no, no. Because I had a couple of cheese grater, you know, Mac Pros, and I had everything, you know, like locked in the machines. And I had two of them running parallel with each other. and And they did great. It was, it was, it was fine. But the minute I got the trash can, um, philosophically, everything changed. And then I also have an offsite storage thing, like a drip storage thing. So in case I have a, a cataclysmic failure of everything, I have it, I have it someplace else, which is great. So when you say like a drip storage thing, you mean like offsite backup, like one of these cloud services that you upload things to? Yeah, so I got I got a little I got a little bit of Amazon Cloud and it just it, it just like drips there and off it goes. So and it's nice. What now if you're using a trash can Mac, you probably need some monitors. How how do you set that up? Okay, so we could probably spend the rest of the time talking about my obsession with monitors. But the simple question, the simple answer is with the trash can, what I did was I went and I got two 48 inch 4K Samsung monitors that I use a- through HDMI. Wait, 40, 48 inch like TV size? Correct. I thought that was a mistake when I first read it. You got to explain that for me, Michael. <laughs> Correct. And in fact, what I'll do is I'll send you guys a picture because you're going to say, well, wait a second, you're in a little back bedroom in Brooklyn. How does that work? Great. So imagine two 48-inch monitors on top of each other, sort of like one on top of each other, like go vertical versus horizontal. And it's I love it because what's great is you see a ton of information all at once. It's right in front of you. And when I'm scoring a movie, what I'll do is I'll usually put the video image of what I'm scoring on the upper screen and then everything else I need, you know, you know, because uh, I use logic and then everything else I need is down below. And then maybe I'll put like a mixer screen above me and it's awesome. And it's all high res. And so like if I really want to, uh, I just, I finished music supervising a really cool uh, series for Netflix last week and the images are gorgeous. And 
to say that the quality of the images and the quality and how it comes through your monitors affects the choices you make, I cannot say that loudly or proudly enough. It's like, it so affects your experience. And it goes, wow, because you really can see the contrast and you can really see the color. And, and this, uh, this show that I worked on is called Moving Art. It's uh, actually going to be on uh, Netflix in March. And uh, the photography is done by uh, a man named Louis Schwartzberg, who's one of the best cinematographers in the world. And Louis's images are intense. They're so beautiful. And watching even the stuff that is compressed down, the stuff that's dithered down on a really nice monitor, it, you make different choices. You just do. And I think as somebody who works in film and TV, how you're experiencing the movie, you, you really want to set yourself up to have the best experience. So when you're talking to the director or talking to the editor or talking to, even sometimes I'm talking to the cinematographer or talking to a graphic designer, my experience of the image is going to be the same one they had. It's, and, and that way you can start creating a visual vocabulary that it's really important. So, um, I mean, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe this is my way of justifying having nice monitors, but at the same time, um, yeah. Can you send us a, a link to those monitors so we can put them in the show notes? I, I think we've got. Oh, no, absolutely. But after doing it for 30 years, though, I mean, I'm telling you, it's like it makes such a difference. And even, you know, my students, because I've taught at Berkeley and I've taught uh, it. You are dangerous, Michael Whalen, because I'm sitting here thinking, well, that's kind of crazy. But then I was thinking, well, gee, I could put a 48 inch monitor on the wall above my 27 inch iMac. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, but, you know, but gamers do it all the time, though. Gamers do it all the time. They do that. They have the multiple monitor setups in their bedrooms and they do it. So like, I am not crazy. Well, when I, when you first saw it, I thought it was a typo in the notes because you know, we share uh, notes with the guests and Michael had written 48 inch. I'm like, well, is it really 48? But then I got thinking, well, if you're playing the piano and you're across the room and you're looking over the wall, a, a regular monitor isn't going to work. You're not even be able to see logic and the stuff that you're working in. Um, but I hadn't even thought about, like, if you're f- scoring a film, you need to see the, f- the picture big. And how far away from these are you sitting? Uh, three and a half, four feet away. I'm close. Yeah, but still, it's not the same as being in front of a right in front of a screen with a keyboard. Right, right. No, no, no. All right. So uh, you've get, you're, you're a happy Mac Pro user. Um, hopefully they'll make more Mac Pros for you. That's a, a question right now in the community. <laughs> Yeah, there really is. I've been reading about that a lot, about whether they're going to have an upgrade. And it's been, I mean, Katie, how long has it been? It's been, well, they had the last build 2013, 2014, and then nothing for what, three years, almost. almost I think it's been over a thousand days, if memory serves. So that leads to be a, a question that, you know, you're probably someone who's good to ask. Is there a path forward for you if Apple doesn't make a Mac Pro? I mean, if if it's just a higher end iMac, is is that an option? It, it's an option, sort of. It's an option, sort of. I mean, um, yeah, I, I think what would probably happen under those circumstances would probably be I would go back. I take a step back and then I would have smaller Macs do individual tasks. 
Because right now, my black trash can is so fast that it can do a lot of stuff in the box simultaneously. Um, and if I didn't have that, what I would probably do is get a very fast iMac as my quote unquote main computer, but then I might go get a mini to do something else. And I might get another machine to do something else. And then, you know, and, and, and go back to kind of the old way of doing things, which is how I used to do it. I used to have two, three machines running in parallel, different pieces of software where the audio outputs and the MIDI were all going to a central, a central point, but I wasn't relying on the processing power of one box to kind of get the job done the way I have been with my black trash can. Um, so if the pro goes away, I would, uh, yeah, that's probably what I would do. Oh, so I hate to break this news to you about the Mac mini. <laughs> yeah, I heard, I heard, I heard. Well, and, and we don't yeah. know anything. It's, it's all speculation at this point. Actually, just as we record this episode, there's there's uh, supposedly another comment from Tim Cook that says Apple is committed to to pro users and the pro machine. So, you know, it's it's all speculation and we try not to delve into a lot of rumors on this show. But it's it's a it's a big concern for um, uh, for for professionals. Yeah, but, you know, all that being said, I, I can't help but feel, you know, a little navel-gazing that they have something intended for pro users, and I think something just went horribly wrong, you know, and it's just taken a while to catch up. At some point, I can't help but think they're going to come up with some kind of new Mac Pro. But I, yeah, I mean, there was that... I've been wrong before. Well, you know, there was that rumor that, you know, you know, Final Cut Pro was going to go away, and you know, Apple Logic was going to go away, and then a few months later, they had major, major, major um, changes. You know, major upgrades. You know, major, you know, major changes in the software. So, I, I, I think I'm less tuned um, to the rumor mill than I used to be. I mean, I used to be a guy, you know five, seven years ago who would read all the rumor sites. Um, and I do that less and less now. Cause I, I, I think for me, what I want to know is like really what's happening. And then I can start making some informed choices versus like trying to get into the hype of something. It, it is uh, I mean, we'll just have to see where that goes. So we, we've covered the hardware, but what software is uh, primary to music production these days? Well, for me, uh, you know, I am a Apple Logic Pro X guy. And, you know, so um, like I was telling you guys, like I was a Sinclair guy through and through and through and through and through. Then in about 99, 2000, um, I moved from the Sinclair as my primary sequencer to Pro Tools, which, you know, is the sort of ubiquitous recording platform. Everybody has Pro Tools. But at that point, they were just getting the sequencer together. And it was kind of a mess. But um, it still is the standard for film mixing. So like if you deliver something, pretty much 98% of the time, it's going to be mixed on Pro Tools. So I used Pro Tools as my main sequencer for years. And then at one point... The company was having a lot of problems and, you know, at a certain point I was just like, this is ridiculous. So a friend of mine let me use his um, logic for a weekend and, you know, we, and we did some songs together and whatever. And I, I really liked the environment. So what I did was I actually paid for classes in New York City, and I went to a place, in, uh, you know, downtown in, in New York City, and I spent a weekend learning how to use Logic. <laughs> so I had never done that before in my life. I have never 
taken a class on how to actually use a piece of software properly. <clears throat> And I got to tell you, it was great. Uh, I learned a lot. The guys, you know, leading the course were fantastic. And um, what I walked away with was not just an understanding of how the software worked, but like uh, I had a lot of ideas. And so from that, um, I was kind of, you know, roaring out of the gates with it. So now it's been eight years uh, almost nine years that I've been using Logic exclusively. And I really, uh, I got to tell you, I really love it. And uh, um, I, I don't know. It, again, it's the environment that you're working in says a lot. And, you know, composers, you know, young composers ask me this all the time and, you know, about where should I live and, you know, where should my house be and where should my studio be? And all of these choices that you make as an artist are really important because those kinds of environmental choices affect what you write, affect what you see, affect what you hear. And the same thing happens with software. It's like, you know, um, I, I friends of mine who use Cubase. It's a great software. And I've, I've thought about, you know, using it and I have actually used it on a few, I mean, but as my main thing, um, but it's, it doesn't speak to me the same way that logic does. It's just, it's just the environment just invites me to do things. And what the, one of the reasons why I really love logic is that if I'm under a deadline, especially in television, I can cruise in it because I have so many templates set up and I have so many, I, you know, like I'm ready to go. So like, if I got a job and this is typical, like, you know, if somebody calls you at like one o'clock in the afternoon and says, hi, I need a track at six o'clock. I can do that easily. Um, so I'm, you know, so I, I feel like um, having this software is a, is, is not just, Hey, it's a technology thing. It's a comfort thing. And um, it's going to, it's going to work in a way that uh, is going to inspire me, but it's also going to be something that I don't have to be thinking about when I have two and a half, three hours to do a track um, or, when a client is here, very often, you know, you're working on a TV project or a short film, um, and you have clients here for days and you really want to be in an environment that is speaking to you and is going to be transparent to the conversation you're having with your clients. Cause very often, you know, they're making changes or they're, you know, or they're, uh, you know, you're working on a, a, a piece of film and they might bring a, a new version of the video with you. And you're like, wait a second, I just spent a week, you know, making my music work with the old one. So, uh, you know, how convertible, how quickly changeable is your um, software uh, in that environment? Now, I know people who can work fast on any piece of music software you can name, but I think the key here is picking the software that inspires you, that you feel comfortable with. And I think a lot of composers do not spend that time. They, they put themselves in boxes that they think that they have to be in versus things that really call them to be. So if I was 23 years old again, and I was trying to figure out like what my studio should be like, I would spend some time experimenting with different pieces of software and seeing what really worked for me versus like what I thought was cool or trendy or like what all my friends were doing. Yeah. And I think the point that you made of going and getting training on something as important as the software you pay for your shoes with, I think that's outstanding advice. 
I'll tell you one thing I really liked hearing from you is that Apple Logic scales to someone that works at your level because, like, you know, the price got cut, and some people argue it became more prosumery over the last few years. My daughter, who's in high school, uses Logic every day. She's a big music person and and uses it, and uh, it was really nice uh, hearing that. Uh, you know, even as you get in the upper echelons of the professional world, it, it's a it's a tool that can grow with you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I have a lot of friends who are major, major people in music and a lot of them are using it and not using Pro Tools to mix on. Like people are mixing albums on Logic and, um, you know, I mean, my last album, Dream Cycle, is, uh, it's a hundred percent Logic. So, um, you know, I, I, I think this is where we started the conversation where again, it's like, this whole like prosumer versus professional and like there needs to be again, like this, this hurdle that you have to jump over. Like there has to be kind of like a, a G whiz factor. I don't buy into that. I really don't. I think that again, you really are as a composer, as a sound person, you're the person making the choices and your tool is just a tool. And if your tool makes things simpler for you, why not? Um, especially in an environment where things are changing as quickly as they do and the demands are as high as they are, who cares what tool you're using as long as you're getting the job done? Because I think 15 or 20 years ago, I think, you know, you'd have a conversation be like, oh, well, Michael Whalen, he's a Sinclair guy. And that would be sort of like a badge of honor versus having like, by the way, do you guys know what an incredible pain in the butt it is to use a Sinclair <laughs> and that I have a special room for the tower that has to be air conditioned because the tower runs so hot. And by the way, I have to put a special circuit in my house because it draws so much power. So, I mean, you know, there's good and bad with, you know, there's kind of the G whiz factor, but at the same time, um, you know, uh, the technology now is simple. It's easy to use. In many cases, you can pick it up and you can take it with you anywhere. And, you know, like I said, I, I think right now, technologically, think it's a golden age. It really is. I want to take a moment and thank longtime sponsor Gazelle for their support of Mac Power users. Gazelle is the online marketplace for buying and selling used gadgets. You can shop for a variety of certified pre-owned electronics or trade in the one you have for cash and give life to a new device. Visit gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com today to find out more. You know, Gazelle is the trusted online marketplace for buying and selling used electronics online. In fact, I've done both. You can trade in your old device for cash, buy a certified pre-owned device, or do both. For trade-ins, you simply visit gazelle.com, find your device, tell them what you have, what size is it, what kind of condition is it in, and you will get an instant quote. Shipping is free and payment is fast. Or maybe you're looking to buy a certified pre-owned device. Maybe you're looking to buy a device for a child and you don't want to have a contract. Maybe you broke your old device and you just don't want to shell out a fortune for a new one. Gazelle has got you covered there too. They have a selection of certified pre-owned devices and a variety of iPhone, iPads, and Samsung Galaxy phones to choose from. Each device is fully inspected and backed by a 30-day return policy and sold to you without any kind of carrier contract. So you can go to gazelle.com today, see what your old devices work, and check out the selection of certified pre-owned devices. 
I have done both, and I've been always been very happy with both selling my device to Gazelle and my purchases from Gazelle. I bought a iPhone for my grandmother off Gazelle recently, and I helped my aunt pick out a device off Gazelle for her son who had recently broken his device. You know, when you're trying to find a used iPhone online, it can be so difficult. Are you sure that you're buying the right model? Is this one compatible with my carrier? What are the differences between the different iPhone models that are out there and the carriers and the bands and all of those things? Gazelle makes it simple. Just tell them what you're looking for. What kind of device? What carrier? boom. All the devices have been put through a rigorous 30-point inspection process, ensuring that they are in perfect working order. And these devices look really good. They're good devices, show some gentle signs of wear and tear, but offer consumers great prices on great devices. And they're excellent condition devices. Well, you may have a hard time ever telling that they've been used before. And of course, if you're looking to offload one of your devices, maybe in anticipation of an upcoming iOS device, Gazelle is the hassle-free place to get a quote, send off your old device, no hassles, no mess, no fuss, no worrying about selling it to somebody shady online and wondering if they're going to pay you or meet you back behind the dumpster somewhere. Gazelle has got you taken care of and they're going to get you paid fast. So head over to gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com and take a look and see what your device is worth. Now, Michael, before uh, the break, you had mentioned that you use Logic uh, entirely to produce your your new album. Um, uh, Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, Well, first, tell us about your album. Well, so 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 my new album, uh, it was released on February 24th. It's called Dream Cycle. And so it's my 29th solo record and, uh, you know, between my soundtracks and all the other work that I do, um, 29, um, I am a well-known ambient new age person. And what a lot of people know me for is the music that I do on piano. And, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk in a second about a little trick I played on the world on my last album, but the dream cycle really is coming out of a year where I've gotten my wellness together. Um, uh, uh, in 2009, I was 132 pounds heavier than I am now. So I've lost a lot of weight and, and I've been dealing with my wellness on a whole bunch of levels. But last year I went to the doctor and even after losing about 70 pounds, the doctor said, you know, you got to finish this. And, um, I was having lots of trouble sleeping, sleep apnea and, um, out of doing a lot of research about sleep out of, you know, getting my own wellness thing together, I wanted to create an album about how do you fall asleep? So just simply, and and we'll go back to technology in a second. Basically, the way sleep doctors treat you is how do you relax yourself before you fall asleep? And they call that conditioning that you do entrainment. So sometimes it's 20 minutes before you fall asleep, half an hour, an hour. But basically, you unplug from your computer, unplug from your TV, unplug from your phone. So your brain is not being stimulated by white light from a screen. And you're going to relax and you're, you're going to breathe and you're just going to chill out and let the melatonin level in your body rise. So my album dream cycle is literally a soundtrack for you to relax to before you fall asleep because human beings cannot fall asleep to music. Cause you're, if you're present enough to, to register the fact that you're actually listening to music, you're probably still awake. <laughs> so, so the idea is, can you can you fall asleep and relax yourself? So so I created Dream Cycle and the entire thing was done in Logic. So 
long story short, what I wanted to do was I, I did a lot of research on sounds that over time that had to have really uh, been just sort of conducive to sleep. And I started doing a lot of research on music boxes and doing a lot of research on harps and string instruments. And so I spent about two and a half, three months designing sounds before I wrote a note of the album. So, um, so part of my background is not only am I a composer, but I'm a sound designer, which is like, I take sounds and I, I create sounds and I put it to picture and I've done a few thousand commercials. So creating sounds is, is one of my most favorite things to do, but very often, even on my own records, I haven't given myself enough time to do that. In creating this album, I really spent a lot of time creating sounds and I uh, did a lot of the work in Logic. I did a lot of work with my hardware and then like transferred it over to Logic. I did a lot of like loops and samples and I created a lot of stuff. In fact, I created about 600 new sounds uh, for the album and then I wrote it. And um it really turned out to be, uh, I think, I think it's, I think it musically, it's my most satisfying record because it's, it, it's put together a lot of the different musics that I have done over the last 30 years. Cause not only am, am I a film and TV composer, but I'm a classical composer. I've done three classical albums. I've written string quartets, all that. Um, I've worked with about a hundred different artists, um, as a producer and arranger. Um, so this album combines arrangements and my classical work and my soundtrack work and my ambient work and my sound design work all in one place. And I'm incredibly proud of this project. But I think one of the drivers behind it technologically was doing this in logic. Because I think doing this in logic and with especially with a lot of the new tools that they have in logic, it made a very complicated record technologically very simple to produce. Uh, Well, well, let me let me break you down a little bit on that though, because I I am. Um, you talked about creating sounds. Do you do that in Logic? I I do using some of the synthesizers in it, or I'll create a sound on a synthesizer here in my room, and then I will sample it. You know, with the uh, the MX twenty four the sampler, and then I'll capture it that way, or I'll play notes on one of my old synthesizers and I'll create loops and textures and I'll blow that into logic and then I'll turn that into a loop later. So I'll just, I'll just have the performance that I'll process and do all that. So eventually everything ends up in logic, whether it's audio or MIDI or as a sample or as a, as a, 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 a sound that I create in, in one of the uh, onboard plugins. It's kind of fascinating that you, so you knew what kind of sounds you wanted, even though you didn't know exactly what the music would be yet. Correct. Cause I, cause one of the things I, I, I gotta say that this whole thing about the music boxes was really interesting to me because it, it's almost like in the 1700s and the 1800s, people sort of instinctively found like the sound in the world that made people relax. You know, whether it was bells or chalice or, you know, uh, you know, orchestra bells, you know, glockenspiel, there's, there's a million names for it. But, but, but in the 21st century, there's, there's literally 10,000 ways to make these sounds. And what I found myself drawn to on this record was actually going back to some of my very first experiences and I've rediscovered FM synthesis. So between, 
the FM synthesizers that live on um, Logic to my old Yamaha DX5, which I have here in my studio, to the the new FM plugins that I'm using. Um, it's kind of like <laughs> it's kind of like 1988, you know, in my brain in terms of like putting together algorithms and putting together, you know, 4A synthesis. And but at the same time, I you know, I, at least I hope so. The album sounds, you know, as you know, as fresh and new as uh, you know, as anything. So yeah. Now, Michael, did you need your Mac 2X to make this album? I did not. And I'm so <laughs> glad you asked that question. No, I did not. <laughs> so so first you put the sounds together. Then you got to the hard work of composing using the sounds that you had created. And and so is that that's done in logic as well? It is. Uh, I mean, you know, I got to say that once the sounds are done. Now, this next sentence, I want everyone to forgive me is going to sound incredibly arrogant. And I, I please, I'm so sorry. Once the sounds are done, writing's easy. Um, after you've done this for 30 years, the way I have, um, you, it's kind of in your brain. You hear it, you go, you go make it happen. And so I do. Um, I, once the sounds were done and under my fingertips, um, it, it's all about the inspiration if you are fighting with the sounds, if you're fighting with how things are articulated, if you're like, yeah, I don't know, maybe we'll see what happens. That's when people spend months and years working on projects versus I'm going to create a palette that's in front of me and I'm going to use this now. Okay. Yes. My palette had hundreds of sounds on it, but having a self-limiting system like that sonically really helps you from a decision-making standpoint because it's like, okay, well, here's my ocean of sounds. This is what I'm using. Here we go. Boof. That's it. And so that way, a lot of the choices were made for me and it made the whole process of making the record so much easier. I would even think that subconsciously, as you're putting the sounds together, your brain is already putting the music together. 100%. 100%. Now, something interesting you did on this is you did have other artists help you out with the creation of the album. And, um, so, so you rented a big studio for thousands of dollars an hour, right? And just, inv and paid for everyone to fly and sit in the studio and make it. Isn't that what you did? That, that's exactly right. So, yeah. So we got, uh, you know, a lot of Japanese food and we brought in the drugs and it was awesome. <laughs> so David, thank you so much for bringing that up. So <clears throat> no, actually, no, we didn't. Um, the entire record was, the central hub of the entire record was my little my little bedroom studio here in Brooklyn, 10 by 12. And the vocals were all done in different home studios all over the country, Maine, Florida, uh, New York, uh, Texas. And um, then my friend Bob Magnuson played Woodwinds um, and at his home studio uh, way out in uh, western New Jersey. And then people would just send me the parts. And, um, I would use what I wanted and leave out what I didn't and comp things together. And there we go. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I really wanted to kind of fly in the face of this whole notion of lullabies on dream cycle. And for a long time, the code name for this record was the lullaby project because I was going to write new lullabies and I was like, yeah, well, okay. So I started playing with the idea of doing a version of hush little baby and I was like, well, like maybe I could do it as an instrumental thing and we could do something, but maybe I could do a vocal thing, but I've never done vocals on one of my ambient records. Okay. Well, we got to find the right voice. So I looked around and I looked around. I know 
so many great singers. I really do. But I'm on the internet and I stumble upon a website uh, of a woman named um, Amy Robbins Wilson, lives in Maine, and she makes these exquisite, completely a cappella, which means no accompaniment at all, recordings of lullabies for babies. And I'm listening to this, and her voice is just beautiful, but there's nothing. The, the recording's very simple. It's got, like, no processing on it. It's no reverb, no no echo, no nothing. And it's just her voice, and and it's just beautiful. So I contact her. I send her an email, and I'm like, hi, I love your voice. You know, would you be willing to work with me on this album? And she was thrilled, and we talked, and just really just lovely person. So she went to a studio in Maine, and she recorded Hush Little Baby, now, we had talked about it a whole bunch, um, four times, completely a cappella. So she sent me literally just her voice. We talked about the key. We talked about, you know, sort of the basic vibe, like what I wanted. We talked about the lyric, which was really important. We went all the way back to the original words to the song. So then she sent it to me, and then I put it in Logic, and I built the entire track around her voice. So I started with her voice and I literally built the track around it using the palette of sounds that I had created. And, you know, I guess the rest is history, <laughs> but it's, um, you know, but I, I pretty much did that with a lot of the live material that I got it was, you know, uh, you know, build the track around the voices. Uh, I did an arrangement of dreams by the cranberries, uh, sung by, um, Karen and Monica Walker, who have a group here in Brooklyn, um, called the new tarot. They're wonderful. Um, I built a track around their voices. Uh, a woman named Liz Madden, who's a wonderful Celtic singer, did a version of twinkle, twinkle, little star built, built a track around her voice. So I, I, I don't know like part of me like, likes the idea that I would listen to the quality of the track and then make sonic adjustments based on the vocal. And, and then I'd send that stuff to Bob we would work out the, you know, the arrangement of what we wanted to do. And then he'd send me back his stuff. And there we go. Mix. You know, I would be fascinated someday for you to time, like do a, there's an app called ScreenFlow where you can capture your screen as you're working to, to just see a time lapse of you working in logic and doing all these things. Um, one, one question I had is when you work with these people collaboratively, are they also working in logic? Are you sharing the logic file or are you just sharing certain elements like, like, the recording or the 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 bounce out of the logic file. Well, um, very often they're going to send me just the audio files, just the bounce. Um, but Karen and Monica recorded in Logic, thank God, so that was made things a lot easier. Um, but yeah, no, mo most people will just send me the uh, audio files, and then I have to you know rebuild everything around the audio. Well, it, it is really a remarkable album, everybody. I recommend you check it out, and it, just hearing the story of how. Um, you put this together in your basically in your house and you never did have to go get the fancy studio. It's just it kind of it's where the world is these days. And I love hearing uh, artists with as much experience as you embracing this and just kind of pushing forward on it. Just out of curiosity, as someone who doesn't have the music background that, that you and David do, you know, you mentioned that you've, you've done all these albums. In terms of difference from both time and cost perspective, and I, I'm not asking you to give me numbers, but maybe just percentages, uh, what is the difference between this album now versus maybe the first album you did where all of this technology was not available? Yeah, it's uh, it, uh, Katie, it's a great question. Um, 
I think the first part of the answer is time. So it's, you know, David was joking, hey, you're going to go to the studio and spend thousands of dollars. But back in the old music economy, time equaled money. So, you know, my first ambient records took a long time relatively to put together versus this one. Now, I spent time creating sounds and whatever, but the actual time of putting together the record, very short amount of time relative to finishing 10 songs. So I would say as a percentage that this album, in terms of time and overall cost, is about 5% of what it used to cost, or maybe 10% at the most. And so... By that, the barrier to entry, I would imagine, for someone who wants to get into this or produce their first album, you know, has just dropped significantly. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I, you know, the three of us could hang out and I could put together a track, you know, on my phone in GarageBand or whatever. There's a million apps now on my phone where I could do something and I can upload it to SoundCloud and, you know, in half an hour, 45 minutes. Well, you know, two two geeks sitting in their spare bedrooms are, are producing a fairly successful podcast. So that yeah, you're you're kind of a that's 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 kind of what Dave and I've been doing for a couple of years here. So. Right, but I mean, but but this, but I think what you're pointing at is kind of the old versus the new. Like in the in the old economy, that's like you know the idea that we would be like you know sitting around a uh, you know dining room table saying hey let's go do a track is not the old ver- vision of going to the studio writing the tracks you know sweating it out making it happen and then you know boom i've got my hit song i mean i know a lot of people who knock out a lot of well known music sitting in a laptop in a coffee shop and like i'm not even kidding does that make it any less credible than somebody who's going to go to a studio and do their thing not to me now i've seen dave grohl's sound city documentary it's extraordinary. It's wonderful. I love going to studios. I love being in a band, you know, with a bunch of guys in a room and you get that visceral energy and it's awesome. Great. How do I pay for it? In this environment, how do I pay for it? In this environment, how am I going to get a record company? How am I going to pledge or get a Kickstarter campaign um, enough money to do it at that level, really? Because you're talking about twenty five, fifty, maybe a hundred thousand dollars, really, to make an album that you, if you sell five thousand units of, you would be lucky. And so, just from an economies of scale, you're really talking about a couple of things. You're saying, okay, well, it's going to cost me a zillion dollars. I'm not going to get this money back. So how altruistic to the world am I going to be versus I'm going to use technology. I'm going to make really good choices. I'm going to be financially responsible. I'm going to make the best record I possibly can. And I actually have a shot at actually making some money over the long term. Because in the new economy, the newest streaming economy, you're not going to... Yeah, I was say, like this Dream Cycle album. I mean, you dealt with a medical issue, and it inspired an album out of you. I don't think that would have happened 20 years ago. No, not really. Because I think, I think then they would have talked about the music, and now it's a wellness conversation. But in a streaming environment, 
I don't get big checks. I get little checks every month from YouTube and Sound Exchange. And so the economy, the expectations of what you're going to be making are very different and it affects the choices you make. It affects what technology you use. It affects how you book musicians. It affects like what your expectations are. Now, I mean, I'm deep into the subject because I'm in the middle of writing a book about music monetization, which is going to come out in April. But I, I'm really, really committed that we give up this conversation called everything sucks right now. And it's really hard for musicians because they're expecting to get a big check versus if you create your stuff responsibly and you bring real integrity to it, you really can have a career as a musician if you follow some basic uh, I don't want to say rules, but there's like a basic structure to monetization that really requires a kind of patience that most artists are not very good at. And it really relies on technology really being your partner versus being like, um, I don't know, you know, like the, like, like the glossy toy that it used to be. Um, and so I, I, I'm really committed that we are in an age right now where there's great music being happening. There's so many artists making things happen. Like Katie says, I mean, I agree with you. The barrier to the entry is very, very low and there's a lot of great music. Now that said, there is an enormous amount of crap. True. There is, but there is so many talented people out there that don't have to go begging for a record deal who can make music and get their thing out there so easily, but they don't have the tools to actually figure out how to monetize this and actually turn this into a real career. Yeah, I believe it is a meritocracy. And if you do make something great, the world will find it eventually. This episode of the Mac Power Users is sponsored by Daylight. Visit marketcircle.com slash daylight to get a free 30-day trial. And if you tell them you came from the Mac Power users, you get 50% off your first month subscription. Daylight is the application you need to run your small business. It manages your contacts, your calendar, your tasks, your projects, and so much more. Because in the case of Daylight, the total product is so much more than the sum of its parts. Daylight was designed as a business productivity app, but it's called many things by the customers around the globe that use it. For some businesses, Daylight is their CRM or customer service tool that helps them keep in touch with clients. To others, Daylight is their project management application that helps them track projects and share tasks within their team. Daylight has even been called a fifth salesperson or a virtual assistant because it helps people do pretty much everything short of making their coffee. We've heard from a lot of folks that use Daylight to run their business. We've heard from lawyers, real estate professionals, design professionals, and other small businesses that need help to keep track of clients in the day-to-day -day tasks. Daylight can help streamline your workflow as well. Because Daylight is a native Mac app, your information is stored locally on your device, so you can access your information anywhere, whether you're on the subway or on a plane. Daylight also integrates with Apple Mail, so you can store emails in Daylight and set follow-up tasks without even leaving mail. It also integrates with the iPhone and the iPad, so you can leverage features like Siri, caller ID, multitasking, all on the iPad. Now, Market Circle, the company that made Daylight, did something really special. They took this application that started as a native app with native data, and it has this beautiful native design, and they've added a back-end cloud component to it. So if you want, you can store your data in the cloud and have it accessible to all of your devices. Daylight is really one of the only applications I know of that has that beautiful native design 
combined with such a robust cloud component, it's really like having your cake and eating it too. We love hearing these daylight success stories from our listeners, so please keep them coming to us. And don't just take my word for it. Go visit marketcircle.com slash daylight to start your own free 30-day trial. And don't forget to mention you heard about Daylight through Mac Power users to get 50% off your first month subscription. Thank you, Daylight, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. Michael, um, I, I'd like to take this this Netflix project you just did and and just talk us through a little bit, because I know while there's not a lot of us listening that are actually going to ever score a film or a television show, I think there's a lot of us nerds that would love to kind of hear the process, especially from the technology standpoint. So from the first time someone gives you a call and says they want you to do their television show or their film to the time you're standing in front of an orchestra and recording studio, kind of give us an idea of how that workflow goes down. Um, everyone is different. <laughs> so long story short. That's fair. That's fair. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean you know, if this was a commercial, you know, it may be hours to do something. If it's a film, it may be weeks or months or years or decades. So long story short, the basic workflow is you have a filmmaker reach out to you. So whether it's the director or the producer, and they say, hey, we're interested in, in talking to you about doing the music for this film. Great. And so in my case, I have two hats. One is I'm a composer and I'm a music supervisor. So a composer is the guy who actually writes the music, produces the music, and the music supervisor is the guy who picks the songs that goes in the show or the film. And in some cases, I've been both. And it's interesting to be the composer and the music supervisor because then you're looking for songs and how does everything sort of live sort of in one world together. So that's nice. So long story short, you basically talk about the schedule, you talk about what their expectations are, and you ask the question, do you have a cut of your film? So John Williams, who just had his 85th birthday, who is probably, the, at least in my opinion, the greatest composer in American history, certainly the greatest living composer, can I, can I just say amen and just let you continue? Uh, uh, sure. So John has a rule that I have now taken as my rule, which is he does not read scripts to movies that he's scoring. He only wants to see the film as directed by the director. Because when you read a script, your brain starts directing it, you start casting it, you start getting costumes and locations in your brain. So it is very dangerous to get that phone call and have someone say, hey, I'm working on a film. Hey, I want you to read the script. Now, as a young composer, you're like, you're trying not to rock the boat and you say, sure, I'll read your script. Okay. As a slightly more experienced composer, you say, hi, do you have a cut of your film so I can see what you're doing? I want to see what you're up to. I want to see your vision. And frankly, you are, if you don't know these people, you've never worked with them before, you really want to see what the level of production is. You want to see what the level of acting is. Like, is you're, you're kind of uh, vetting them a little bit. You're pre-qualifying them a little bit. So they will send you a cut of the film. So whether it's like, you know something on uh, like uh, Vimeo or, you know, like, you know, some quick time movie or whatever, you get a sense of, of what it, what it is. 
Now, before we go too much further, can can I inject here for a minute and just ask you to explain that process just to, just to back up a little more? Because I think uh, most of our listeners, number one, will be fascinated by it and probably don't know how that works. So when you're looking at a film to score it for the first time, are you seeing the whole thing just without any music <laughs> or are you just seeing a snippet or bits and pieces or... No, it's it's a, it's a really good question. So, okay, um, you know they say that there's no two snowflakes that are the same. Okay, well, there's no rough cut that's the same. So the answer to your question, Katie, is that if it's a rough cut, it's probably going to be um, kind of a general sort of assembly of the movie. Um, it's probably going to change a lot structurally. It's probably longer than it's going to be. Um, and it has temp music. So temporary music. So, and they'll pick music from, you know, different soundtracks or albums or artists or whatever and things they like to try to get a sense of emotionally, like what's happening in some of these scenes. And, and you can get a sense of like what they like or like how things work or how much space there is for music in a film which is which is fine. Now, the problem sometimes is that you have filmmakers who become so used to the temp that they have that they become like like okay, basically they're asking you to recreate the temp. The the famous story of that was Alex North, who was one of the best film composers ever in history, wrote the score for 2001: A Space Odyssey. And the, the the music that that people know was the temp, and they basically said, "Okay, Alex, see, this is what we like, and you go do stuff like this, and go make this happen." And he did. And the famous story is that he went to the premiere screening of the movie. He sat down and he heard what you're hearing, which was the temp. His his uh, score was thrown out. So, long story short, temp music is. It can help create a vocabulary between the filmmaker and the composer, but it can also really get in the way because especially with inexperienced people or people who become a little bit obsessive, they're like, I want that. It must be that. It's like, okay, great. Then you should go out and license that. Oh, no, no, no. I don't have money to license that. I'd rather have you do it. So you get into that conversation. So long story short, once you kind of ask some questions about what they want and you get a sense of like what the vocabulary is, you start creating some basic demos and you start getting up on your feet between the way your style works and what it is they want. And doing those first demos are really, really important. And I think it helps a lot in terms of your confidence level in terms of creating a sound that's going to work. That's something that you're comfortable with and it works for them because they start having confidence in you and they start going, okay, yeah, okay. This person really understands what's going on here. Cool. So those first demos are really important. Uh, they're usually, you know, synth MIDI demos and, you know, and it's very often, it's just trying to get a sort of a sense of theme and style and tempo and some moods and, you know, like here's where the transitions are and, and there you go. So just like, so technologically, you would like, if they sent you the film, you would sit down in Logic and compose music to play under that film. And then, and ultimately you would, it's like you said, MIDI instruments, you're not going into a studio yet. You're just kind of getting a feel for it. 
And then you would bounce that out or export that, I guess would be the term a lot of people understand. You'd export that music and then they would combine it with the film to see what, if it's working for them. That's right. And so, and then, and then, and then you start going back and forth in terms of, you know, getting notes and like right now I'm working on a terrific short film and the notes are so specific. It's a comedy and, um, you know, and it's all about the timing and, you know, is the music stepping on the comedy timing? And, um, and I've, you know, worked with Michael on a bunch of films and, um, I trust his timing. So having that kind of relationship where, you know, they're not asking you to change something to, to be a jerk. They're, they really are doing it because they really are thinking about the overall um, makes a difference because I know a lot of people who do film scores and they're like, I'm never doing this again. They made me change everything. And they, 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 they kind of go off versus really understanding that every choice you're making is only about making the movie great. And that's it. It's only about making it great. And it's not about your ego and it's not about, you know, anything other than are you telling the story? And at the end of the day, is the viewer left with the story as intended by the director, by the writer, by the producer, like, like as intended. And, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, who was a great film composer, has a great quote about that, which is, you know, the best compliment a composer can get, which is, you know, you know, you go up to them and you say, okay, so what did you think of the music? And the person watching the movie says, well, what music? So the idea that the music is so transparent to the telling of the story that you cannot pull them apart. Um, that's when, you know, things are really working. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, as a composer, I'm really committed to that. And also as a music supervisor, like I want to, I want to pick music that's going to work and be that seamless. It's going to help tell the story and move things along and really, you know, put that second, third and fourth dimension, you know, on the characters, on the scenes, on the context of the whole thing. Now, if as I understand it, a lot of this, the music for film and television production comes towards the end. I, um, I read that when the Rogue One was coming out last year, Michael Giacchino got the assignment. Like it was, I felt like it was a couple months before the movie released. I, I think he was kind of a last minute addition. Well, actually, 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 David, it was way worse. Michael uh, was not the first call, so uh, Alexander Desplat was going to do the music, and then it got the movie got delayed because of reshoots. So they called Michael, and he did the entire score in three weeks. Three weeks. Wow. <laughs> yes. Yes, sir. So. so uh, Wow, we got to get him on the show someday and hear that story. But the um, but so but we, I'm sure you found yourself in that spot too. How do you manage your time when you get into a project like that where you've got a, a large amount of work to do in a very short amount of time? Well, I mean, you know, there's there's sort of echelons here. So, like on a major Hollywood movie, you are going to have you and probably a small army of assistants who are writing different cues or different reels of a movie. So for those of you who don't know film terminology, a reel of a movie is anywhere between 10 to 12 minutes of a movie. Now in the old days, they would have to um, basically staple these reels together um, because, you know, the reels would be so large, they would have to be taking them off and putting them on the machine. Obviously in a, in a digital world, they don't have to do that, but they still make feature films in terms of reels. 
And it really helps in terms of job flow because, you know, okay, so, um, you know, I'm working on real one. He's working on real three. Okay. You know, she's working on real five. Cool. Boom. We got it. And so it, from a, from a, from that, from a workflow standpoint, it really helps a lot. On television, you probably have less help because usually you're going to get the show on a Sunday or Monday and the mix is going to be on a Friday or a Saturday. So you pretty much have three and a half, four days to do the music, get it there. And then they mix it in a day and then you do it again on Monday. So, um, you know, so if you're working on a major TV show and you've got, you know, 13, 20, 22 episodes, um, you know, those are busy weeks in there. Um, when you're working on documentaries and smaller television, it's usually like one composer. And maybe if you're lucky, someone who's going to help you with music editing, if you can. Um, and from that standpoint, the workflow piece becomes very difficult. And so when, when you have one of these projects, the, um, you're, you're composing the music, but is there special software that you use to kind of keep it in sync with the video or is it just something done? With? Just do it. Yeah. You, you throw, you throw the quick time in, in logic and you, you, you rock and roll. Now, now what they do very often is they do visual time code and they burn it in. They actually put it on the video itself. So you can see, you know, one hour, one minute one second and then how many frames and then that way you know when you're spotting things everyone has the same thing so real one will be one hour real two will be two hours real three will be three hours and that way so if i'm looking at something and it's you know oh three oh one oh two twenty four i know that it's real three like right just like just looking at the screen so long story short it's i think important for people to look at creating their own workflows. That's why when I was saying before about why I love logic so much, having templates, having that stuff pre-set up is really important. Having, you know, doing the work of actually creating your palettes and then going into it is really important. I remember a couple of years ago seeing a terrific video with Hans Zimmer talking about, you know, his process before doing the Batman movies and how much pre-work he did before actually sitting down to scoring the movies. Now, huge movie, time it's great but that kind of discipline that kind of focus makes a huge difference in how your music's done so whether you're working on a big movie or a little movie or a student film it doesn't matter like are you going to give yourself that extra time to create some sounds and to really get yourself mentally ready to jump into this because if you're shooting from the hip and it's basically like okay well let's see how this goes that's probably how the music's going to sound when you're done versus really bringing the integrity and the structure of creating the sound palette and doing your demos and really getting the buy-in of the director and the producer. So they're like, wow, I you know, wow, he, she, whoever is scoring the film really gets this all the way down and they're, they're confident in what you've created and that confidence is really where great film scores are made because the people who are willing to take the chances and go off onto the skinny branches, that's where great music happens. You know, it, it sounds to me like if, if you were using the analogy of a painter, that you're using the technology to get the, the palette right and the brushes and everything in place. But then when it comes time to paint, you just paint. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say that's a beautiful, you know, recreation of what I said. Cause I think that's the key. Um, I, I think every film 
y- there's 10,000 different kinds of palettes you could bring to it. And the only one that matters is the point of view of the director and the vocabulary that you and he or she agree on together. And I think it's very important that that you're using technology to help create this vocabulary versus it being like a wall or a barrier. I think back in the old days, it would be like, you know, someone would walk into the studio in the nineties and it'd be like, uh Oh, here's all this technology. And now instead of like having a creative conversation, you're going to have a technology conversation. This drives film people crazy. Now the, the software, the it, it's also transparent that you're only going to have a creative conversation. And now it's just like, okay, let's just get it done. Boom. Um, that's why I'm saying things are so much easier now. Like technologically, it's like it's so much better than it used to be. Because in the 90s, you know, even back in the late 80s, you'd be wrestling with technology, hoping that things were going to work. Now it's my expectation is that things work all the time. And that mental headspace, like is that's all the difference. I want to take a moment and thank longtime sponsor SaneBox for their support of MPU. You can go to SaneBox.com slash MPU and receive a $25 credit on any SaneBox plan. You know, SaneBox is one of those services that I'd heard about for a while. David was trying to convince me that it was so great, and I never really thought that I had a need for something like SaneBox. When they came on as a sponsor, I decided that I'd give them a try. And you know what? Three days. That's all it took before I decided that SaneBox was something simply indispensable that I could not live without. And you know, over 66% of MPU listeners who have tried SaneBox end up subscribing, so there's a really good chance that you'll love it too. Here's what happens. You connect your email service to SaneBox. It works with just about any email service out there, whether you use iCloud, whether you use Gmail, whether you use Exchange. And SaneBox starts learning what type of email is important to you, and it filters out what isn't, saving you hours. You don't have to sign up for a special email program. You don't have to change all of your email workflows. SaneBox just works. The first thing it's going to do is give you a Sane Later folder. So you keep in your inbox only what matters. If it's important, put it in your inbox. If it's not, it goes in the Sane Later folder. Then you've got the Sane Black Hole. If you've got something that keeps getting in your inbox or people keep sending you email that you don't want, drag it there unsubscribe with one click without anybody ever knowing it. And then there's the whole idea of snoozing and deferring emails. If you've got something that you know you want to deal with, but you don't want to deal with it right now, maybe you want to deal with it on the next business day, maybe you want to defer it to the weekend, create a snooze folder and it will defer those emails. They're still safe. They're just stuck in a folder, but on the specified day, they'll pop back into your inbox so you know that you'll never forget them. And do you have somebody in your life who maybe isn't the best about responding to your emails? You could CC or BCC them to Sane Reminders. So when you send them an email, you could say BCC one week at SaneBox.com. And if that person doesn't reply to your email within one week, you'll get an email from SaneBox reminding you to follow up. And you can pick any time frame or date that you want. It's that cool. SaneBox is more than just filtering, though. It can save attachments to other cloud services. It can have an administrative assistant or someone help you with managing your email. It can allow you go in and do custom filtering. There is so much more to SaneBox. You've got to try it to know that you're going to love it. And you can because they give you a 14-day free trial. They've got various pricing plans that start as low as just a couple of dollars a month. So head over to SaneBox.com MPU and get started today. So, Michael, you were just talking to us about, you know, how things have changed over the last 20, 25, almost 30 years. You've seen tremendous shift in this industry. 
where, where do you think we're heading next? I mean, even in the next 10, 15 years, or heck, maybe even in the next five, things are progressing so rapidly. Yeah. You know, I think the thing, I think where things are going is look at what has happened to television in the last three to five years. So we're moving away from broadcast television to streaming television. We're moving away from scheduled television to on-demand television. And so how television is consumed, how it's produced, what people's expectations are, has completely changed. So that affects how music and technology is created, because I think there's now an expectation that now things like prices are going to begin to get pushed down. Um, cause people always say, well, what about game of Thrones and what about Westworld? And what about these very expensive series? Those are holdovers from an old fashioned sort of TV economy. The new fashion TV economy is forcing people to work faster, better, cheaper. And I, so I think where things are going to go in the next three to five years is faster, better, cheaper tools that have you make incredible um, uh, music, uh, incredible visuals. Uh, you know, before I was sharing about my friend, Louis Schwartzberg, I mean, he's shooting video right now. That's eight K and right now. And, you know, there's only two places in the country that can even process video files that large. So where are things going? You're going to have simpler, faster tools. You're going to have incredible high explosive, um, visu visually dense, rich material. And I think people's expectations are, I can have it anytime, any place, anywhere. Um, uh, you know, I, I think technologically, it really is going to be incumbent on the technology people, the, the Apples and the Googles and, 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 and everyone else to say, okay, we need to make these tools great. And I, and I, and I, and I am worried that Apple is, possibly leaving the pro business, but at the end of the day, I don't think they will because so much of what's happening right now with television um, uses Apple as the backbone. So much of what's happening with music uses Apple as the backbone. So I can't imagine that they're not going to give us some uh, tools that are going to be able to make things better, faster, cheaper. From a software standpoint, I think we have a, a, an interesting situation that is happening right now. I think um, we have sort of a generation of people coming up who are so used to working with loops and textures and things that are kind of inside in the environment of software already that I don't want to say that it's already sort of found music, but I think... Um, EDM, electronic music, you know, dance music and scoring and sound design and ambient music. I think a lot of these things have changed people's perception of how music can be made. But at the end of the day, I think we're in a very kind of interesting place where we'll go back to the thing we talked about a couple of minutes ago, which is, you know, the three of us sitting at a dining room table and making music on a phone. That is going to be just as real, you know, in terms of what people want, as long as it is what they want. So it's not going to be how it's made or where it's made. It's going to be what is it? 
So when I hit the play button or if I get a stream, is it the thing that I want? Yeah. So the software is now going to be under even more demands to do things faster, better, cheaper. The last, the last thing I'd want to say about where things are going is I think that the phone companies are about to become a huge player in a content world. Yes, you've got AT&T and you've got Verizon getting ready for things. But I think moving away from the internet and moving on to 4G and 5G, which is, you know, a year or two away, um, and, and having that be like closed systems for content. And that is going to be very, very interesting to see what happens when you're going to create a piece of content and it's basically going to happen all within a cellular, a very high speed cellular network. Um, you look at places like Korea, look at places like Japan, where their cell systems are much faster than America. Look, their whole thing around streaming and digital content is completely different than America. And I think that we're moving very much in that direction. And I think the phone companies are going to take a very, very big piece of what the future looks like. Yeah, it all comes down to the pipes, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. All right. Well, we always like to close out the show, especially when we have unique guests on with just some of your favorite gems and some of your apps. And you've you've certainly been around the Mac and iOS platform for a while. So whether it's music specific or, or just general purpose utilities, tell us a little bit um, about what what your favorite tools are on the Mac and, and how you're using them or and iOS. Well, my, my, my favorite Mac music app is the Arturia Synclavier V. So I, I talked about my early days. So back in the early days, they had FM digital system Synclavier and Cameron Jones, who wrote the original software, wrote this app and it's beautiful and it works great. And it's all over my new album, Dream Cycle. And it's it's like my favorite app ever. And it, cause it's, it's combining a lot of the sounds that I loved and this beautiful state of the art technology for iOS. Um, two things that I really, really like one is, um, Jordan Rudess, who's the keyboard player for dream theater, who is just so good. He has a company called, uh, morph Wiz, and he has this, uh, it, it's an amazing, um, I want to say like an alternate controller that you can use on, I use it on my iPad and it is, uh, I don't even know how to, how to describe it without like showing you, but basically it basically, I just imagine the flat surface of um, your iPad basically being either, either a controller or notes, and you can just swipe your hand across it and get all kinds of different textures. And it's amazing. I've used it since almost the moment it's come out. And one of the things I really, really like about it is that you're not thinking about notes. You're just thinking about textures. And from a sound design standpoint, it's fantastic. And the last um, iOS um, iPad thing that I love is back in the old days, they used to have um, a computer music system called the PPG. And um, it was invented by a German genius named uh, Wolfgang Palm. And he created this thing called the PPG wave generator for iOS. Um, it is the best emulation of the PPG platform I've ever heard. And I use it all the time and I only use it on 
iPad because the interface is so beautiful. I just, it's, it's terrific. It's interactive. And I, you know, I'll hook it up right here in my studio and I'll play along with stuff and I'll, I'll throw stuff into logic. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful tool. You know, one of the things I like about your picks is like the, the Wolfgang Palm PPG, everybody used to drool over the thought of like getting to be in the room with one of those. You know, most people didn't, didn't have money to buy one. And, um, and I, I feel like there's two classes of these apps showing up on iPad, uh, music related. And one is these emulators that take something that all of us wanted but could never afford and makes it very reasonable for us to suddenly have something very close to it on our iPad. And that's great. But but MorphWiz to me is a, even more interesting in the sense that it's like it's a new way to make music and sound. It's something saying, I'm not going to copy what people were making in the 70s. I'm going to say, okay, this is a new paradigm. There's a flat piece of glass here. What could I do with that? And I am fascinated to see what smart people do with that in terms of the music creation over the next, you know, few years. Even even Apple, uh, there, the, you know, the drum, um, you know, the the drum wizards, which I know aren't as good as a real drummer, but I mean, the things that Apple's even doing is is really interesting to me and very creative. Yeah, it's 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 a really it's really exciting if you're willing to kind of push all your your pre notions aside and say, hey, you know what? It doesn't have to just be notes. What if we just start with the textures and see where this goes? It's it's real cool. And what do you think about like if somebody's listening and they have a, a son or a daughter who's interested in music? What do you think about GarageBand these days to help people get started? I think GarageBand is a great place to get started. I have friends who have kids who are in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, who are using GarageBand on Macs or on iPads. And it's a great way to get kids involved to get people to like interact with things and to have the process again not be like this intellectual exercise but be something that could be visceral and have it be exciting for them and an experience and you know that's the kind of thing that touches someone and goes wow you know i love this and then you can fill in the foundation but like first they've got to fall in love with that well, as somebody, as I said, the top show who used to use two Sears and Roebuck tape recorders to, to make my music, <laughs> if they had GarageBand in the 70s, I, I'm not sure I would be uh, a lawyer right now. I might be, you know, one of your uh, colleagues. <laughs> but the uh, so it is something amazing to me. And, and that's one of my favorite things about Apple products is things like GarageBand, which really do enable your creativity. I mean, you don't have to play a game at a bus stop. You could literally write a song with GarageBand on your iPhone. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I have. <laughs> I'm sure you have. You've probably I scored have. a movie. Well, well no, I mean, I, I mean, I, there, there are some desperate stories I could tell you like, hey, we need a thing. Can you send us a thing? And then you send them a thing from your phone and they go, hey, wow, this really works. And that's a true story. And did you do it in GarageBand or did you do it in some other app? I did in GarageBand on my iPhone 6. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And right on the Wi-Fi on the plane and saved my butt 100%. Well, well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. I want everybody to go check out Dream Cycle, Michael's brand new album. We're going to link that in the show notes and you can get it everywhere. I believe it's on iTunes and Amazon and all the other places as well. It is everywhere. Yeah, but, but go to his website too and check out some of the amazing things he's doing. We've got the, the link. We're going to go ahead and put it in the show notes. Um, I want to thank our sponsors today. That's Smile, Gazelle, Sane Box, and Market Circle for uh, helping us keep the lights on. And uh, we will see you all next time. 